and turn to Psalm chapter 13. Psalm 13, it's on page 453 of your pew Bibles. Psalm 13. Lest we ever think the Bible doesn't have anything to say about those of us that are hurting and frustrated, those of us who are going through trials, perhaps those of us who have been praying about something over and over and over again, and yet we still don't seem like we're getting an answer, or maybe not the answer that we wanted. For those of you who have uttered a similar word that David does in the psalm, how long, O Lord, how long are you going to tarry in answering me? The psalm ought to be great encouragement for us, but also a game plan, if you will, counsel to us to how to endure through a trial and a struggle of our own. So let me read for us Psalm chapter 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let me pray. Dear Lord, would you teach us this morning from your word? Would you encourage us and strengthen us? For the trials of this life, sin has plagued this world. We hurt one another, and others hurt us. And as a result, Lord, we go through difficulties. Would you give us strength that we would not despair, we would not turn from you, but that we would draw near? It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. R.C. Sproul, in his book, Surprised by Suffering, tells a story of when his six-year-old daughter got her tonsils taken out. They read books about taking your kid to the hospital, and they even read the books to their daughter, preparing her for what she was going to come in contact with, what she was going to experience. Ultimately, they told her, honey, it was going to be okay, because in the end, you're going to get to eat a lot of your favorite ice cream. It's just not going to be that bad. So the day came when it was time for them, time for her to get her tonsils taken out, and she went in. The pediatric wing to the hospital was decorated very pleasingly for uh, little kids. These fish swimming on the wall and so forth. They get, she gets to her room, and the nurses are there prepping her for what's going to happen. They're playing with her, bringing toys. Oh, everything's going to be wonderful. R.C. Sproul says he will never forget the look on his daughter's face when she came out of the surgery. Her face was ashen. She uh, had tears coming down her face, blood crusted on her mouth. And a look in her face was, Daddy, you lied to me. You weren't honest with me about what this was going to be. She was experiencing this whole new threshold of pain. She, she, didn't, it, she didn't know it was going to be like this. She knew it was going to be difficult, but she didn't feel like her father had been honest with her about how difficult it really was going to be. You know, the questions that she had of her father are the same questions we often have of our Heavenly Father. We know it's going to be difficult. We know there's going to be pain and suffering in this life, but often we're perplexed at how difficult it seems to be. Have you ever felt that way? I know that trials are a part of the Christian life, but man, I didn't expect this. And I sure didn't expect ever to feel abandoned or ever to feel like, God, are you hearing me? 
I'm calling out to you and I don't feel like you're hearing what I'm saying to you. Well, David has great counsel for us in the psalm this morning. We know that God is sovereign. We know that he's good. But in the midst of pain and affliction, what do we do? What do we do with that? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that these are momentary afflictions. Momentary afflictions that are preparing us for the weight of glory that's in heaven. So there's a, there's a purpose behind them. There, there's not meaninglessness to the things that we endure. But how do we confront them? How do we endure them? David gives us great counsel. Let us look at this passage in three ways, three points, broken up in three two-verse sections. Number one is the problem. Number two is the prayer. And then number three is the praise. Number one, the problem. David asks four how long questions in the first two verses. How long, O Lord, he says. There's intense emotion, even anguish in his questioning. How long? He's frustrated. He doesn't understand why he's enduring the things he has to endure. Do you hear me anymore? <laughs> Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever uttered a prayer similar to David's? Of God, are you even there? Do you hear the cries of my heart? Have you neglected me? <laughs> David seems to come, in his mind, to the logical conclusion is, and we don't know what the trial is that David's enduring. The Bible doesn't tell us. Commentators have offered their opinions, but we don't know what it is that he's going through. But have you ever thought that? The reason he's not answering me is that he isn't there or that he's forgotten me or abandoned me. You know, it's important to note here, as we see in the following verses, that this is the, these are the cries of a true believer. David hasn't fallen away from the faith. He's hurting, and he's being honest with God. He's not being disrespectful. His questions are wrong, and his, and his mind will change by the end of the psalm. He's hurting, and he wants to understand better. David is a child of God. He seems, he feels abandoned, and he wants to understand. So let's look at these four how-long statements. How long, O oh Lord, number one, will you forget me forever? David feels alone. Are you there, God? Can you hear me? John Calvin says of this first question, it's not that the persuasion of the promises of God were extinguished in David's heart or that David no longer believed in God's grace, but that he'd been so overwhelmed by the calamities of life that the divine hand of God could not be seen and he assumed that he had been forgotten. These were David's initial conclusions based on what he was going through. You know, to acknowledge the presence of God in the midst of affliction and trial in your life is not normal, and it's not typical. That's not often where our mind goes first. Oh, clearly this is God teaching me and drawing me near. Our initial response is, no, he's left me and he doesn't hear me anymore. David's trying to change our perspective. Because after all, waiting on the Lord is difficult, isn't it? We don't want to wait we want our answers now, and we want them to match up with what our desires are. In the short term, waiting is frustrating, but in the long term, it's agonizing. We say that time flies when we're having fun, but when we're not having fun, time creeps by agonizingly slowly. Problems are manageable in the short term, and in the long term, we turn to despair. Number two, how long will you hide your face from me? It is that David is saying, do you even see God? Or do you even, will you just turn your gaze to me for a moment 
and take a look at the plight that I'm going through. Do you even see me, God, he asks. We ask for God's face to shine upon us. It means we're asking him to give us blessing, to to consider what we're going through. David thinks that maybe the Lord's angry with me. What have I done? He's, He's searching for answers here, which leads to his third question. How long shall I take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? David's saying, I'm giving myself the pep talks here, God. I'm having to come within myself and find my own counsel because I don't feel like I'm receiving it from you. How often have you felt like you're your own counselor and your own encourager when you just so desire for God to be your counselor and your encourager? Maybe some of you kind of prefer that. If you're like me, when I'm going through a trial and a hardship, I just turn within myself. I don't want anybody's advice. I want to give myself counsel. That's not where I ought to turn. I ought to turn to the Lord. David desires this, but he doesn't feel like God is answering him. How many of you are often tormented by your own counsel of your own soul, yet it's marked by fear and doubt and anxiety? David doesn't want to do this any longer, and so he wants the help from God. And then the last how long question. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? We're troubled and saddened by life, or our enemies seem to be prospering and rejoicing. Are you frustrated with God this morning because you just don't feel like he's answering you or that he hears your questions? You're going through something, maybe it's been for a very long time. God, do you even hear me anymore? Where are you? How long am I going to have to endure this trial? How long is it going to be before you give your comfort and your provision, your understanding, and your peace? I've been begging you for a long time for this, Lord, and I'm not getting it. I'm not receiving from you what I want. Why haven't you blessed me with the job that I so desperately need? Why haven't you blessed me with the relationship that I so desperately want? Why haven't you blessed me with the baby that I so desperately want? Why haven't you blessed me with the, one, the money that I so desperately need, with, with the health that I so desperately desire for myself or for a loved one? How long, O oh Lord, how long is this going to last? Have you asked that? Do you even care anymore? Charles Spurgeon says that it's not under our sharpest but our longest trials that we're in the most danger of fainting or giving up or turning away. Not our sharpest or our hardest trials, but our longest trials that we're in the most danger of turning away. Have you ever gotten to the point in your own prayer life where there's an issue that you just can't pray for anymore? Because it's too, it would be too painful to pray for it and the Lord not hear you or answer you again, or at least that's your, that's your understanding of it. I just can't pray for this anymore because I can't get another no, or I can't get another what it seems to be silence from him. We don't know all the reasons that the Lord takes us through different issues in our life, but this psalm is telling us that one reason certainly is to draw us near to him. This psalm does not take David further down into despair. It draws him closer and into a deeper relationship with his father, not further away. We don't know all the reasons for the trials, but we do know one reason is he draws us near. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that I mentioned earlier. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see, this is where our theology has got to trump our experience, our perceptions, and our emotions. We know that God doesn't abandon us because his word says that he doesn't abandon us, and he draws near to the ones that are his. But yet our experience sometimes feels as though he has drawn away from us. So we have to trust our theology and his word over our experience. We know that God's sovereign hand is guiding us, providing for us. And that his word says that his plan works together, works good for those that love him, Romans chapter 8. It doesn't say that all things are good, but all things work together for good for those that love him. So our problem here in the first point is that we feel like God doesn't hear us and that he's abandoned us. God doesn't immediately answer our prayers and so he must not be there. So in response to those questions and the how long of life, what do we do? Well, what does David do? Does he say, forget this whole Christianity thing, I'm going out on my own? No. He prays. So number two, the prayer. The first two verses are basically a lamentation. Crying to God for help, for deliverance and answers. But David does not descend further into despair. Instead, he turns to prayer. And this has got to be our practice as well. When we don't get our answers or we continue on in the struggle, okay, this isn't working, let me try something else. David says, no, pray harder, pray deeper, draw nearer. I heard a pastor say one time that everyone in the world is in one of three stages in life. You just came out of a trial, you're currently in the midst of a trial, or you're just about to go into a trial. Isn't that basically your experience in life? And David is setting a great example for us for that. Pray. And so he begins in verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Some of your translations may say, look upon me. You know, turn and look at me like a child asking their mommy or daddy to watch me do this. We're asking him, consider me, God. Look at me. David's desire is for God to, cont- to hear him. Notice, David initially says, you've forgotten me. But if he, really forgot, if he really thought that God had forgotten or abandoned him, would he be praying? Would he be getting more intimate and more passionate in his speech? No, he wouldn't. If he thinks that God had forgotten him, why pray? <laughs> why do any of this? And if David hadn't been going through this issue, would it even have prompted him to pray? You see, for many of us, when life is just rolling along just fine and it's smooth and everything seems to be fitting into place, that's often when our prayer life is the weakest, isn't it? I don't need to. <laughs> Everything's going great. And so Lord will inject a hardship or a trial into your life. Why? Not because he doesn't like you, not because, oh, it's, things have been too easy for him lately, to draw you back near to him because we are forgetful and we turn away. Some of us won't pray unless there's a trial or hardship in our life. He's loving and faithful to draw us near, even if that means taking us through a trial. David believes that God can hear him, so it prompts him to approach the throne of grace again. And he asks, light up my eyes, God, or enlighten me as to what's going on here. David desires that he he be able to see with the eyes of faith. Give me understanding for this. If not, David confesses that he would sleep the sleep of death. 
Lord, give me understanding. This could be the death of me. But no matter how bad it has gotten, David continues to pray to his heavenly Father, and we must do the same. We must continue to speak with him. You know, it's so hard for us to consider that trials in this life are actually blessings, isn't it? This can't be a blessing. You think about something that's going on in your life right now. How could I ever view this as a blessing? But these light and momentary affliction that Paul speaks of, they're preparing you for the eternal weight of glory that's in Christ Jesus. As followers of God, we must continue to pray, knowing that he does hear us and he has not forgotten These momentary afflictions draw us near. We know that salvation is by grace. We've been taught that for a long, long time. But don't you also see that these momentary afflictions of life are also by grace if they draw you near to him? He's just as gracious in the hardships of your life as he is in saving you and bringing you to himself. Have you given up on God this morning? He just doesn't hear me. He's just not doing what I want him to. Return to the throne of grace again and again and again because it draws you near to him and it reminds you as it clearly does David in our last two verses, he's dealt bountifully with me and he has saved me. So number three, the praise. David begins these last two verses by saying, but, almost as if he says, nevertheless, I know what I've said the first four verses and I really felt those to be true. But despite that, or nevertheless, I have trusted in your steadfast love. You see, the trial's not over for David. There's there's no reason for us to think that anything has changed between verses 4 and 5. There hadn't been answers, there hadn't been a resolution, but in David's mind and in David's attitude, attitude, everything has changed. His tone has changed. How many psalms... Can you mention the turn that begin in sorrow and that end in joy and gladness? And that drastic change happens in this psalm as well. Again, Charles Spurgeon says that it is worthy to be observed that the joy is all the greater because of the previous sorrow, as calm is all the more delightful in recollection of the preceding tempest. All the trials, the sorrow, the fiery darts of the evil one does not turn David away from God. He's like a boxer. He's been, he received a blow to his head, and he's staggering. He's bleary-eyed, but he hasn't lost faith in his Savior. Instead, he says, he has dealt bountifully with me. You see where David has come in six verses? He's forgotten me completely. No, he's dealt bountifully with me. It's a total reversal. What's happened in between time is circumstances haven't changed. You know, we've got to get to the place in our Christian life where we are not so swayed by the circumstances of our life. We've got to be swayed by who God is and what he's done for us and not our changing circumstances. Uh, back in 2001, uh, there was a movie released called To End All Wars. Uh, the movie To End All Wars is about World War II. The book To End All Wars, if you've read it, is about World War I, just in case there's any confusion, which that is a little confusing. But the movie To End All Wars is about a bunch of allied prisoners who, have, who were captured and put in a Japanese POW camp in Thailand. And they are tasked with building a railroad between Burma and Thailand. This is based on a true story. Building a railroad between Burma and Thailand to ship Japanese goods in between. This movie is very gruesome, if you've ever seen it. 
It shows the horrors of life in a Japanese POW camp, the torture, all that goes on, the, the mistreatment and everything. There are lots of very, uh, many very emotional and powerful scenes in this movie. One comes at the very end. There are U.S. planes that fly overhead. Months before, they had flown overhead and dropped bombs onto this POW camp. This time, they dropped pieces of paper. They dropped flyers. They come raining down on these prisoners. And this is what they say. To all Allied prisoners, the Japanese have surrendered unconditionally, and the war is over. Some of these men had been in this POW camp for as many as three years. Can you imagine getting that sheet of paper in your hand? It's over. Now, the movie portrays American soldiers coming in just moments later and and physically liberating these prisoners, but it didn't actually happen that way. It was actually some time between the dropping of the flyers and the actual liberation. These men were malnourished. They were emaciated. They were uh, hardened because of what had happened to them. And they had to endure more time in this this prisoner camp between the time they saw the flyer and the time they were actually liberated. But there was hope. Hope that they hadn't had before. They knew that the liberation was coming, but they still had to endure some time there. Christians, Christ has accomplished all that we need. He has freed us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us into the glorious light of the gospel. He has won the victory, but we must continue to endure in this life until he comes again and physically liberates us and takes us to be in heaven with him. We are saved now, and we are being saved. We must persevere in this life because we haven't been fully liberated. But make no mistake about it, Christ has won the victory for us. These trials are hard, and they hurt deeply, but they don't last forever. These momentary afflictions that we've spoken of, this is not a, oh, get over what you're going through, it's really not that bad. It's have an eternal perspective. These are momentary afflictions that prepare you, so draw near to the one who has saved you. Don't fall into despair or in thinking that he doesn't hear you. Because deliverance will most certainly come. So how are we able to persevere? We must. We must do it for the one who created us and sustains us and loves us, knowing that he is in control. It's not easy. You know that it isn't. But how many times has has your recollection of God bringing you through a past trial given you courage and hope in a current one that you're going through? How quickly we forget the loving kindness of God. Had Dave, how could David have forgotten it? We, well, you wonder how David could have even asked the question in verse 1. He was the king. He'd been given victory in battle. His enemies had been subdued. Yet he still said, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? We know this because we utter the same things, yet we have been dealt bountifully with just as David had. Our response must be to draw near to him. How do we get through this? We remember how the Lord has dealt bountifully with us and we consider our salvation in Christ. Because the hunger makes the food taste so much better. The thirst makes the water quench so much deeper. The night makes the morning so much brighter and fresher. The sadness and hurt makes the joy and restoration fuller and sweeter. Uh, I'm convinced that the movie and the books, The Lord of the Rings, are the most quoted books and movies ever in the history of sermon sermons. So I'm going to do it again. Um, 
I heard a pastor quote, uh, use this quote that I hadn't heard in a sermon before, but I thought it would be helpful here. In the last book, or the last movie, The Return of the King, for those of you who have never seen The Lord of the Rings, here's the basic storyline in 20 seconds. There were lots of rings, but only one of them remained, and it's the most powerful of all the rings. And so 80% of the book is this group of people who are trying to take the ring to the only place where it can be destroyed, Mount Doom, and then do just that, destroy it. You see, the ring had always found its way into the hands of the wrong people, and they had wielded its power for evil and done so for many, many years. But finally, the ring found its way into the hand of this little hobbit named Frodo Baggins. And he and his best friend Sam, their mission was to take this ring to destroy it. They had lots of people who had helped them along the way, but in the end, it was just the two of them. And so that I can spoil the movie for you, they do do that. They destroy the ring. Evil, evil and sin are destroyed. Good wins the day. And so they all go back home, and they sleep for a long time. They're tired from their journey. And Sam wakes up, and he sees his good friend Gandalf. Gandalf is this old, wise man who he hadn't seen for quite some time. Gandalf, you're alive. I thought you were dead. After all, I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad now going to come untrue? Sam asks the question, now that evil and sin and all the bad stuff has been destroyed, is everything we called sad going to become untrue? He didn't say, is all the good stuff going to start happening? He said, is it now untrue to call sad things sad? When Christ comes again, all these momentary afflictions that we have in this life, we won't forget them as if they never happened, but it will become untrue to call them sad. We won't think of them that way. We'll have been given a different perspective. Our sorrow will be turned to joy. They'll now be things that drew us nearer to him, not further away. They'll now be things that drew others to Christ because of our testimony. They'll be untrue to call them sad. Jesus says in John chapter 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Lest you think that God cannot understand what you are going through, consider Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is praying to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he pleads that the cup of suffering would pass from him. But what is the answer from the Father? The answer is no. This cup of suffering cannot pass from you, son. And if you go to Matthew chapter 27, and Jesus is on the cross, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see me? How long, O Lord, is this going to endure? And what is the answer from the Father? It's silence. It's silence because in that moment, Jesus represented our sin, everything that we have to endure. He represented in that moment. The only person that's ever really endured the silence of the Father was the Son. We think we're enduring it, but it's a momentary affliction that's preparing us for the weight of glory that's in Christ. He endured the silence so you would never have to endure the silence. Turn to Him. Do not neglect the throne of grace. You will be heard. Don't forget that he has dealt bountifully with you and has called you to deal and to endure the momentary afflictions of this life because he is coming again. You won't forget all this, but you'll be giving a different perspective on it. It's preparing you for heaven. Give thanks 
to your Savior who endured the silence of heaven so that you wouldn't have to. And praise be his name. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word from Psalm 13 this morning. Lord, we need to be encouraged. We do not have your perspective. We cannot see all things at once. And so we have doubt and anxiety and fear. Would you take that from us and that we would trust in you and in your word and in your goodness and in your loving kindness. For you have dealt bountifully with us. Would you remind us every day of that and that we would not neglect coming to you in prayer, turning to your word. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.